Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Lisa Lipkin. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Allow me to introduce who Lisa is. She is a storyteller who currently lives part-time in New York, part-time in Amsterdam, and for the last 25 years has worked as a professional storyteller, writing and performing original works. And in a role as a storyteller, you also were the storyteller in residence with the Museum of the City of New York, where she brought historic exhibitions to life through original storytelling. Now her articles and stories have appeared in the New York Times, in the New Yorker, and she's author of a couple of books, uh, including The Complete Guide to Storytelling for Parents. She's also the founder CEO of Story Strategies. And in that capacity, she worked with companies like Shell Oil, Colgate Palmolive, uh, a Dutch bank, the Ministry of Defense, Schweppes, Transamerica, to help these organizations find their stories. Finally, she's also the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And these are all the stories we're going to share with us today. So Lisa, again, so great to have you on the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. When did you find out you were a storyteller? That's a very good question. I can tell you that I know when I developed my love of stories to start with, and I'm sure it has to do with my Hungarian mother, because mm -hmm. you know, Hungarians make a story out of everything, especially in that generation. I mean, my mother, God bless her, is, well, she says she's 90. We think she's 94. They lie about their age. That's one thing they all do. And they also tell stories about everything. And so my mother used to make up a story. Literally everything was a story. Um, I remember she, she, her name is Sharika. And she had two sisters, Rojika and Borishka. And they would literally sit around the table. They would have just gone shopping to the Walmart and they would literally make up a story about the tomato that they had just bought as if it was an epic poem, you know? They would sit around going, can you believe it, darling? What, you, you know? And I remember early on learning that it's possible to make magic out of the mundane. Um, and she also used, she used her stories as teaching tools as well. Um, like, um, I remember when I was um, applying to colleges, I, I was not a good high school student. I was like an average student mm -hmm. and I didn't think I could get into any good schools. And so I only applied to like really mid-level colleges. And when my mother found out, she goes, darling, <laughs> she goes, I have, I know a boy like you, average. He also applied to average schools and he was rejected from all of them. So I said, mom, why are you, what are you, why are you telling me this? And she said, there's more. Then the boy's father, said now aim higher. So he applied to Harvard and got in. And I had no idea what she was talking about, but at the last minute I put an application into Sarah Lawrence College, which is in America, top women's college, top co-ed college. And um, I got in and all the other schools rejected me. And I realized years later in retrospect, what she was saying is it kind of takes a, a top notch thinker to see in you what a more mediocre mind can't. And um, I use that lesson a lot, you know, um, when I when I was trying to write as a journalist for a, a brief period of time, I got rejected from all the 
small newspapers and then I put a proposal into the New York Times and they took me and stuff like that. So I, I think early on, I saw the power of stories to teach, to inform, but also to make life a lot more fun. <laughs> Okay, but that, and, that's and, what that's observing that, that that's observing what a story can do. Yeah. But I also know you as a great storyteller. I mean, you've just proven Thank this you. by uh, almost being a voice actor. I mean, every time you speak about your mother, you cannot yeah, yeah. tell her her line in her in her. You have to tell it in her yeah. voice. So, well, I, I I will tell a story I have never told anybody. It's so embarrassing. And um, if you're asking me how I knew I was a storyteller. I didn't, in fact, I had no idea, but this is a really a true story. I was work, trying to be an actress back in the late eighties and early nineties. And like every other actress out there, I ended up being like a waitress and a secretary most of the time while I was auditioning. And it was August and I had to take a job in an office in Soho with no air conditioning, answering phones while the owner was in the Hamptons or something. And I was miserable sweating and I, just, you know, there was no internet back then. So to occupy myself, I picked up a magazine on the table, which was Smithsonian Institute. And I start flipping through and I see they have an ad. There's a historic cruise going up the Hudson River that summer. And it's going to go to all the towns. And I thought, oh, I want to be on that boat. And just, I don't know what came over me, but I wrote them a letter and I said, I'm a colonial storyteller. Don't you want me to go on board with you? And, you know, have me tell stories like I figured what the hell, right? <laughs> anyway, weeks go by, months go by and I get a letter back from them and they say, yes, we want you. You're hired, but you're not coming with us on the trip. We're pulling into South Street Seaport next week. You have to climb aboard, tell stories about New York and then get off. <laughs> but but we'll pay you. And I was like, OK, so <laughs> I quickly ran to the New York Public Library and I got a book called New York folk tales and legends, folklore and legends. And I started reading these stories about New York and I was transported. I mean, they, it brought history to life in a way I couldn't believe, I was so excited, but I was still worried because I had never worked as a storyteller. Plus I was not a historian. So I said to a very dear friend of mine who's no longer alive, I said, David, they're gonna know I'm a fraud. These are all historians, what am I gonna do? when they ask me questions about history, he says, you simply turn to them and say, you'll have to ask a historian. I'm merely a teller of tales. So I did the gig. It was a bunch of um, women, mostly single women or wi widowed who were drinking, didn't, weren't particularly listen, listening, um, but I got through it and they liked me and they hired me a number of more, a number of more times. And I found, I kind of, had a thing for it and I, I loved it. I never planned on doing it, but once I started working professionally in this capacity, I really gave up acting and ended up going down that path, working for the New York Historical Society as their storyteller and eventually the Museum of the City of New York. And of course, getting much better at it. Um, but you know, it was really how it happened was by sheer accident. So that was a very long-winded answer, I'm sorry. No, but I, I love the answer because Again, it's a story, and this is about storytelling, so I love that. But also uh, bears to me the question, um, does the story have to be true? It's, I, I love that question so much, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something very interesting. So as you mentioned, I, I live part-time in New York and, and in Amsterdam. I perform now that I'm an old lady in 
many, many countries all over the world, all over Europe and all over America. And there's, and there's only one country where every time I'm done with a story, they ask me that question, is it true? And, and it's New York. I mean, it's, an, it's USA, it's mm-hmm. USA. Um, and, and, it's, it's a que- and I always wonder why. And so I have two answers to that question. The first is, I think Americans are a bit more naive and a bit more literal. Mm-hmm. And the onus in America is really on the teller of the story and not the listener. I think in Europe, it's more how you listen. You listen with a more cynical ear and it's up to you, the listener, to figure out is that story true or not. But what is truth is really the question you're asking. And I kind of um, determined for myself that I would stay um, as factually true as I could, of course, but, but more importantly, that I would stay to what is psychologically and emotionally true, that I would never vary from that. Um, so that I would not, I would not, for me, the most important thing is to capture what the emotional, psychological spirit is of that story. So if I'm regaling audiences with a story about George Washington and his trip to New York, of course, there's no way I'm going to know whether he wore the red pants or whether his hand was properly placed on the Bible when he was sworn in. But I can, from the research, gauge how how he felt about it and how the others felt around him. So as long as I'm making sure to deliver what is the most psychologically, emotionally true version of that story, I, I can take some liberties with some of the details on the facts, if that makes any sense at all. Um, now, I fully understand that. It also reminds me of, uh, well, a story needs to be entertaining or it, it has an entertainment value. And uh, when you make people laugh, you remember things. So when you touch people's emotions, uh, people's heart with a story, uh, the story sticks. It's just like what you said about your mother doing shopping in Hungary and talking about that tomato. You, you... But, the only re- but the only reason the story sticks, regardless of who's telling it, the, oh, there's only one reason a story sticks, and that's because you're connected emotionally. If you're authentic and connected to your own emotions, um, it will resonate in the listeners. If you're doing it from your head, if you're trying to be funny, if you're trying to, if you're presenting what you think intellectually is an emotionally moving story, it won't work. And and actually, the neuroscience behind that supports it. Um, I mean, there's been a wealth of neuroscientific studies done now about, you know, storytelling and and, and emotions and the regions of the brain. And um, there's a fascinating phenomenon identified by by researchers, um, I believe at Princeton, uh, called neural coupling, where they found that at the exact same moment that the teller is connected emotionally to his story, the same region of the brain activates in the listener. So you are literally taking over the brain of your listener at that moment. Um, and, and it's been quantified. Um, and, and, and this was developed not by us, but it, 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 it was developed from the, the earliest um, inception of man, from Homo sapien, as a way of protecting us. Um, you know, you, you wanted to warn the people in your community not to play with the tiger or stick your mm-hmm. hand in a fire. Um, and, and you told a story, to an emotionally packed story. To, to make sure that survival was assured. And 
and those regions of the brain um, work that way. So it's really, um, it's not just a technique, it's really essential if you want to get anybody to be moved. I mean, by the way, I'm letting, it, say, I'm letting it sink in because I think it's very valid, but uh, please continue. No, no, I, I was going to say a lot of other a lot of other physiologic features happen as well. Um, when you engage emotionally, you activate all sorts of hormones, even virtually, by the way, not as many, but even virtually you can reach people. Uh, oxytocin, which is the hormone women use for breastfeeding, but it's also a it's a, it's a generosity hormone gets activated. And um, some other researchers found that people were, you know, more likely to donate money, like by something like 50% when they were given oxytocin before, before being asked to give it, it, you know, there, there's some fascinating studies about hormonal changes and um, neuroscientific changes in the brain that happen when you stay emotionally connected to your story. So. Hey, got that. Um, and this, um, I'm thinking of the story that often, it, it, so it's about the emotions you want to get across. That's uh, at the end of the day, what it, what's important. Um, now, I'd like to move on to how you've used your experience, your, and, and the techniques, the techniques you've learned over the years with, what you, what you now are doing with story strategies and is actually helping organizations discover the story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I eventually got, got like kind of too old um, to jump around on the stage anymore and also less interested, didn't need to be clapped for that way or heard that yeah. way, but I, but I became fascinated in helping, helping others do it. And um, so, you know, my process is maybe a little different than, than some others in that I, most org, certainly most organizations when they're putting together a PowerPoint, you know, they'll say, they'll ask a series of questions of themselves. Um, what is the most important information that I'm trying to deliver? Who is my audience? Um, what do I want to achieve? What are our goals? Those are all pretty typical questions a corporate person will ask before they put together their talk. And I never asked that. I, I always ask with the, the first question is always what moves you, fascinates you, delights you about the thing that you're going to be talking about. It really doesn't matter what their response is. The point is that they must access and identify what is moving to themselves emotionally. And then I always find a way to hang the facts of their presentation on that emotion. So what I try to do is the same thing I did when I was telling a story, which is make your talk um, driven, driven by, a, by, by an emotion or a series of emotions and hang the facts on that. Hang facts on emotions, not the other way around. And I think it's really the flip side of what I've always been doing. So rather than telling a story what you think your audience wants to hear, tell a story you want to hear yourself. Not even that you want to hear, but I, I don't. I don't even, even that's a little too intellectual. I even it's more even more embryonic or more more okay. primitive than that. It's more like um, like if I if I asked you right now, Fritz, um, if you if you were selling your podcast right now, you'd probably come up with a whole series of things, right? Um, 
what, what, how you're going to help people sell their services and how you're going to educate all these wonderful people that are listening. A, a whole series of facts I'm, I, I'm guessing you would identify. But um, I, might I also would include a very selfish uh, reason because it's fascinating just to have an opportunity uh, to talk to people. Okay, so that's the place we would start with, you know, your fascination. And then I would find out why you're so fascinated and um, what, you know, what is it about other people's stories that fills you up and transforms you? Because transformation is essential if you're going to tell a story. It's not just um, the benefit that you receive, but it's always the transformative thing that happens as a result of that benefit. That's really where a story lies. Okay, so, so am I now hearing you saying that uh, the way to develop a good story, you also need to be a good interrogator, you need to ask questions, you need to dig in deep what it's all about? There's many, many components to a, to a good story. It's many, many components, but the, the place you always want to start, the place you always want to start is by interrogating yourself. What fascinates me? What horrifies me? It doesn't really matter. Again, I'm using that neuroscientific principle. You have to engage in some way emotionally with yourself. Now, it doesn't always have to be joyous and positive. It could be fear, you know, it could be horror. Um, either will work to activate your emotional region of the brain and thus your audience. But you have a couple of minutes only, not even a couple of seconds to capture their attention when they're gonna lean in. Otherwise it's all over. So it's up to you to activate something emotional within yourself. And then it's up to me, your coach, to help you then figure out how do we take that emotion and then hang the series of facts about the thing you're you're selling on it. Okay. And so far to date, does everybody have a story at the end of the day? Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. How, it, not everybody accesses it as easily mm -hmm. or feels as comfortable but everybody, and, and, and not only does everybody have a story, but what's so wonderful about starting with what, what, what is unique to you emotionally is that nobody, nobody else has your story. If you really are very honest and specific about your own experience, looking at whatever it is, you, whatever story you wanna tell, if you start with what moves you. For example, you said you're fascinated, but I guarantee you, the reasons you're fascinated come from a wealth of things that happened in your past, in your childhood, a wealth of stories that have happened to you that nobody else shares. And, and therefore, your story is not only interesting, but it's completely unique to you. I got that. And I actually, I agree with that because you've already got me thinking about, hey, what are those stories? But brings me to question, uh, does that mean... Uh, is a corporate storyboard even possible? Because if the person's telling the story needs to have that personal emotion, then the story he's going to tell or she's going to tell is going to be unique for that individual. So how, does a corporate well, that's where, I mean, that's really, that's why I get hired is I help them identify what is unique for them, but then we find a way to, 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 to drive it so that it, it meets the corporate, um, mandate so i mean yeah. i can give you a million and one examples of how it works um uh, okay give, give me give me an example where you've helped yeah the organization I transform think of a good, their, 
your story. Uh, my very, very first job in Amsterdam, a corporate job was corporate, was with a, it was a biotech company. It was a new emerging biotech called Amsterdam Molecular Technologies. And they had a gene therapy product that was already highly developed staged. I think it was, they were already at human testing. Um, and and, and the, the, the CEO had been brought in from Germany because they couldn't figure out why they weren't able to court investors. I mean, it was, it was you know, it, it had great efficacy. Um, by the way, it worked on a number of orphan um, diseases as well as Parkinson's there. And, and I said, well, what do you say? And, and, and I, I don't think he'll mind me, me sharing this. He said, my name is Jorn Aldock. I'm the CEO of AMT. He would say this to investors. And I'm here to transform your company and let me show you why. And then he would list his facts, which were compelling, but they weren't working. So I kind of put him through a series of questions. I said, did you sit through any of the human trials? He said, yeah. I said, did any of them move you? He said, yeah. There was one guy, he was around 32, the same age as me. He said, he kind of looked like me. And I thought to myself, but for the grace of God, that, that could have been me. And he was, he was deeply moved by that experience. So we changed the opening of his PowerPoint and he now comes out and he says, my name is Jaron Aldock, I'm the CEO of AMT. When I first came to this company, I thought I would transform it. I never understood how it could have transformed me. And then we started. Now we hung every single data point, but the narrative was driven by his transformation. So he would tell his transformation, we'd stop, and then we'd go backwards. Back in 1987, when this research first happened, then we'd go back to his narrative. Now we find that, you know, so once you have people riding on an emotional narrative, they'll go with you anywhere and they'll absorb that data better. And actually he did raise the money, but not even because of his power, but not even because of the data. He said people would corner him at the end of his talk and say, you know, my aunt has Parkinson's, my mother is sick. And that's really what inspired them to give. I mean, in the end, it really wasn't anything he said other than his story. So, that, I mean, that's a small example. Does that help illuminate a oh, little bit? Very much. No, I, I understand. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. How you could help organizations find their story and help the people telling the stories, uh, how it relates to them as an individual. There, there's another really fun story that just came to my mind. Is it, is it right if I share it sure. with you? Yeah. This is totally different. A guy from Ameriprise, which is a financial advising huge financial advising company throughout America. It used to be a wing of American Express, but now it's in independent. And he, he came to me and he said, you know, I used to like, um, I used to be a bestseller. I, and I don't know like what's happening, um, but um, you know, I, I've now, I'm, I have a family business now. I had a kid um, and I now I'm trying to help families plan for their future financially and my story isn't, isn't working. Um, so we started talking and he said, but you know, I really changed my life. I got rid of my Corvette sports car. I, you know, I, I, and he kept saying the word family, family, family. And again, I'm, I, I, I'm using my hyper radar, but something isn't sitting right. It just feels a little disingenuous. Mm -hmm. and, and so another technique that I use a lot 
is the use of inanimate objects. Um, I've and I do it in a way to sort of trick the brain, kind of the way dog trainers do when they're trying to get dogs out of their angry state. Um, I said to him, that's a really interesting watch. Tell me about it. It was an antique watch. And he was kind of like confused, but he said, oh, this watch belonged to my grandfather. I, I love my grandfather. He's, you know, we still go to church together every Sunday. He says to me, we get my Corvette out of the garage and we go to, I said, wait a minute. I thought you said you sold your Corvette so you could be a family man. He said, well, I, I put it aside, but I take it out every Sunday to, to go to church. I said, now that's an interesting story. I said, because what you're really saying is that you found a way to be a family man and still be a little bit of a hedonist and still be spiritually active. I mean, you, you've got your whole story now in place. And he was so relieved. He was so relieved that he didn't have to pretend to be something he wasn't. So we started to, he started to create his new pitch based on a truth that even he was kind of in denial about. Um, and it, it, it really illuminated much more fully who he was instead of negated that. So that's like another example. So you can, you can some, sometimes people themselves are not aware and you can use tricks, um, questions that are absolutely unrelated to the thing they're talking about. Objects work beautifully and you can, you can, you can find out a lot. That's, that's quite deep, uh, uh, Lisa. Thousands of stories uh, you can share with us, uh, no doubt. Um, hey, at the end uh, of the program almost, uh, before we um, have to uh, sign off, what are you up to today? Uh, how, what did you learn from all those years of storytelling uh, uh, in the yeah. business personal sense? How do you apply that now? Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I still work with companies yeah. going in and doing training and helping them, but I, I became very interested in also this process of uh, qualitative research and how, how can you identify um, what is meaningful to either uh, uh, any person um, based on their narratives. Um, because what I found was um, in going into companies and helping them develop their story, um, I had to go through this process where um, they themselves had to become aware of what was most deeply meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so I've been using a lot of kind of original techniques and working with people in the field of qualitative research, um, partnering with them uh, to, 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 to get at really unique insights, um, whether it be um, a medical device that um, a company wants to know whether it works or not, I'll maybe go in and talk to surgeons and I'll have them become um, a, a body part not the surgeon, but the part that's being operated on, for example, or a fly on the wall at a meeting, um, you know, a whole series of original techniques um, that can illuminate really, really interesting insights. So that, that's kind of a new, new direction. And I'm doing a lot of writing as well. So those are some of the areas, writing, um, insight gathering, and, and of course, training. Hey, really, really, really fascinating, Lisa. Hey. Now, normally we end this part of the program with a number of personal questions, but rather than asking you a personal question, I actually would like to ask you to end with a personal story because you're such a great storyteller. And in my research, I, as mentioned in the beginning, uh, in the introduction, you are the, the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Yes. And somehow I linked that 
to a presentation you really usually gave about the cameo pin you got from your uh, grandfather who passed away because uh, you stated i finally had roots i finally have roots could you share the audience uh, what that story is about your personal story well the, the story I, I i shared in that is, is quite quite long but i i can i can share with you that the essence of it which is um that you know um i want i was recently visiting a friend who had a baby and she had a, a kind of a somebody had given her a little banner for under the crib and it said the best thing you can give your child is roots and wings and I had neither of those um I didn't have wings because my mother a holocaust survivor was so frightened of everything she had PTSD really well into you know motherhood um so I was never allowed to go anywhere and she followed me in her car on dates and um, wouldn't let me cross the street, that kind of thing. But I also had no roots because um, she never talked about her past. Um, there was only silence. And uh, I also had no family objects uh, because everything had been lost and stolen in the war. My father um, comes from Brooklyn, and, um, comes from Brooklyn and when his mother died and we were going through some family objects, he handed me a cameo pin that belonged to his mother. And it was so profound. It was so deep within me um, that I just wore it everywhere. I mean, I, I wore it, you know, to, to gym, to class, to school. And at one point I lost it playing with some kids and I thought it was gone forever. And I had such a profound response to it and I couldn't really figure it out why. But months later, it reappeared in the grass. And it was sort of apparent to me that my profound feelings about that pin had to do with the idea of survival. And that somehow it, it symbolized not only my mother's survival, but my capacity to survive too. So that's sort of the nature and the spirit of that story. Hey, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing that. You've taken us along with the power of storytelling, not only as an individual, but also you touch upon how organizations can, that, can do that by actually going back to who they are as an individual. So I really want to thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom on storytelling. So Lisa, thank you. Thank you, Fritz. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.